Based on what you're saying, you sound like a really nice guy, Jay. Hey, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Billy the bouncer had stabbed them in the leg with a knife, and the guy's bleeding. So they gave him 20 bucks, put him in a cab, sent him off. Okay. <laughs> the world you are describing, particularly from the early days, is so different to the world that we have now. Yeah, it is different. But I mean, that's, is it progress? I don't know. A rape joke has the same career penalty as an actual rape. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, Trigonometry needs your help. We took a big risk creating the show. And for us to keep doing the incredible work that you all love, we need your support. That's the only way we're going to stay independent and create content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. There is no other podcast where you'll hear interviews with Nigel Farage one week and the next week you've got Aaron Bastani, the founder of left-wing show Navara Media, on the same platform. You know the mainstream media aren't honest. You know they've been caught lying again and again. You know they can't be trusted. The only way to change that is to make a stand and support independent content creators like Trigonometry to produce better and more honest content. We have big plans and we'll shortly be announcing exciting new shows and more terrific interviews with huge guests. That isn't going to happen without your help. When you support us, you also get incredible extra content, such as extended interviews with none of those irritating adverts, and they'll be released 24 hours early just for you. We'll have exclusive bonus interviews that only you get to hear. Click the link on the podcast description or find the link on your podcast listening app to join us. Support us and help change the way we have conversations and make the world saner. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. As everyone can tell, you're a fan of cars. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. But before that, look, I remember growing up and your show was so well established. You were hugely popular. But people of my generation and younger right. wouldn't have followed your journey from the beginning. So we always love to get people like you to tell yeah. us your story. How did you How did you get into comedy and stand-up and, and all of well, that? Well, I grew up in a rural area. I was born in New York City, in New York, rather. When I was nine, we moved to Andover, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles north of Boston, kind of rural area. So the idea of going into show business, you know, my mother is from Scotland, and... To the day she died, she never understood what I did, you know. <laughs> I, I can remember, I had my Aunt Nettie, a Scottish name, and my, I heard my mother on the phone. I, obviously, my Aunt Nettie said, what's Jay doing now? And she said, well, he has a little skit that he puts on from town to town. And I'm going, Ma, I don't, like I'd stand in town square and I sort of do a dance or something. <laughs> There's no conception of... I mean, it's a kind of place where people go, Kathy's boy wants to be a comedian. Oh, it just didn't seem like a viable profession. Uh -huh. You know, you come to Los Angeles and you meet nine-year-old kids who want to be lighting directors because their dad is or their uncle is. So they're all in the business. But growing up in a small town, you, you worked at the sneaker factory or you worked at the plant or you were a teacher or something of that nature. The idea of going to show business really did not seem like a viable alternative. And how, how did you end up going into, I mean, that must well, be Well, I went to a, school in Boston, and Boston had thousands of students with no money, willing to be entertained by people with no talent. I mean, <laughs> the colleges, they would put a candle in the cafeteria, it would become the Two-Toed Cafe, and this was the late 60s, early 70s, 
and it was a pretty serious time. It was mostly folks saying, stop your war machine, man. <laughs> and they would have a flashlight under their chin. It would be dark. And stop your war machine. And they'd run over there. Stop your war machine. And just like this sort of alternative experimental. So the idea of doing stand-up didn't really even seem like, what? It, it was not something people thought was a viable alternative. Then George Carlin started to come in and then Robert Clinton. Because see, prior to that, most comedians... And I imagine the same thing in England, uh, where men in their 40s or 50s grew up during either the war or in America during the Depression. Times are rough. Uh, kids with the long, oh, they have so long, the pants are through them tight. <laughs> These hippies, all that kind. And then suddenly had this younger generation talking about things that I understood. You know, I remember George Carlin's Class Clown album. That's sort of what ignited me. I remember hearing it and I would recite it, not on stage, and then... To get into it, I would put my own stories at the end. I would, I would do his routine just to get the rhythm in my bedroom or something. And then I'd put my own story. And so the first time I got on stage, I just, I was standing backstage doing George and I walked, I tried to time it. So when I walked out, oh, well, here's what happened to me when I was in school. And, 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 and that sort of worked. It worked pretty good. So there's a whole generation, Richard Pryor. Mm. You know, but nobody's better than, we called him Richie back then, but... Um, I used to try and go on. After, I remember back in the 70s, I think Richard Pryor was the first guy to do a comedy stand-up movie. It was R Richard Pryor live at the Sunset Strip. And for about two months, he would come to the comedy store to break in the material. And killer. Nobody funnier than Richard. It's unbelievable. And I remember saying to Mitzi, who owned the place, can I go on after Richard every night? You know? And nobody wanted to do it because you just die. But I realized I did not have an hour's worth of material. I had about 12 minutes because after following Richie and you go on. But it was good training because I just threw out everything that wasn't funny. You know, comics are inherently pretty lazy. Or, well, you know, that joke worked back in the 80s. Yeah, but it's not the 80s anymore. <laughs> you, you can't. You people, how old are you? What are you talking about? You know, I, I, I remember seeing a comedian not that long ago. You know, I was thinking about Nixon in the paper the other day, and I go, first of all, Nixon was not in the paper the other day. <laughs> I don't believe you as an audience member, and you're doing, a, I'm not a crook, you know, all that. Nobody knows what you're talking about. Nobody knows who Richard Nixon is. I mean, but that's what happens when you're a comic. You just sort of, you just keep doing it, thinking, well, it did work once, you know. It's like guys that have a bad pickup line. They got laid once with it <laughs> in the 90s, and they've been saying the line ever since, you know. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. You do. The, it's so interesting because comedians are like that. Oh, no, mate. That joke worked three months ago. You go, yeah, it worked once. Right, right. Doesn't mean it's going to work again. And you're talking about Richard Pryor. For people of our generation, he's a legendary figure. What was, it, what was he like as a person? What was it like working with him and watching him perform? Well, he was a great comic. Uh, Moody, some days it was Richard, sometimes Mr. Pryor. And you realize, oh, okay, he's serious now. Okay, hey, Mr. Pryor. And then 10 minutes later, you're fine. You know, just odd. Did a lot of drugs. <laughs> a lot of drugs, uh, you know. And, a, a, you know, he grew up in a whorehouse in Peoria, Illinois. I think his aunt or somebody ran the brothel. So, yes. You know, just witness to a lot of things at extremely young age that were either inappropriate or just 
outright wrong. So you cut them some slack, um, but really funny. I mean, to the point where it, it, it was so natural. And, you know, he was the first guy to use terms like mother, the motherfuckers, you know, like that. And I remember Cosby would yell at him, you know, Cosby's <laughs> the moral equivalent. <laughs> stop using the F word, stop using that. But for Richard, you never felt like he was using it gratuitously. Yeah. It, it, it was a vernacular. He was talking as a character. And it was always just really funny to watch, you know. Uh, oh, he had just, I remember some of the, you know, about two black guys at the urinal, you know, and they're standing there, the guy, one guy says, his water's cold. Yeah, and deep too, you know, <laughs> just, those, just those kind of jokes, you know, just like, and yeah, I mean, he was, he was, re he was really good. It, yeah, it was just, it was really a joy to watch him work because it wasn't set up punchline. Yeah. It wasn't, a guy goes into a bar, it, was, it wasn't that. He was always telling a story and playing a character and, and that's what really made it work. Yeah. What were those days like in the comedy store in the in the seventies and the eighties? Wonderful, wonderful. Because to me, you know, it's so funny. Whenever I see, there was a a series about it. I'm dying up here, and, and you know, the drugs and the depression. To me, it was a joyous time because I never met another comedian. When I was, I was fortunate when I started in New England and Boston. Didn't have comedy clubs. I worked strip clubs. So I never knew how bad I was because people were always yelling or throwing stuff at you, you know. So if I got a laugh at all, I thought that was great. It wasn't until I, there was a club called Lenny's on the Turnpike, which is a great name, but it was a jazz club. And I got to open for Miles Davis and wow. Stan Getz and Mose Allison and Amon Jamal and Rasan Roland Kirk. And I would get, say, please don't comedian Jay Leno. I'd walk on stage. And they were, they were there to listen because they're jazz people. Yeah. I never had an audience that listened before. It was always, you suck, get off stage. I remember the first time I got on stage, first time I had Jay Leno, and a guy goes, we hate him, he sucks. And I'm thinking, did they see me come in? How can they hate me? How, you know, well, of course they didn't see me. It wasn't based on anything. It was just a rough joint. That's what it was. So working that jazz club, it really made me appreciate the audiences. And, the economy of words, trying to get to a joke as quickly as possible without a lot of, you know, the, I think the reason comedians like to talk to other comedians is when you talk to regular people, go to you, right? So I goes to him, right? So like she goes back to me. What do you mean goes back? You mean she, they, they just trip over the, yeah, they're tripping over themselves, yeah. you know? Comedians get to the point, so it makes it a fun conversation. And Jay, you talk about starting out working strip clubs. Mm -hmm. That people who haven't done stand-up don't know. I mean, I've never played a strip club in my life, thankfully. Right. <laughs> but even, you know, I've been similar situations. That's a horrible experience as a comedian. No, generally. it's a great you experience. You enjoyed it? <laughs> well, I enjoyed it because there's nothing worse than silence. And if they're not paying attention, it's not your fault. Mm. Yeah. You know, you're up there, okay, maybe you throw out an ad lib and get a laugh and Hey, shut the fuck up. Oh, oh, okay, that wasn't really funny, but okay, I got to laugh. You know, so it, 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 was that, it was sort of comforting because it wasn't my fault. Well, I, I used to go into bars and I'd put a $50 bill on the bar and I would say to the bartender, can I do comedy? No. I'd go, okay, it's 50 bucks. If I do bad and people leave, keep the 50. If I do good and they laugh, give me the 50 back. Okay. That costs you about $500. <laughs> but it also, would, a couple of times they'd say, 
yeah, yeah, come back on Wednesday. We got a, like a, what they used to call them a hoot nanny night. It was mm -hmm. folks saying, yeah, come back. You're going to have to say, oh, okay. And, and, and that sort of led into it. So I was a bit fortunate, you know, when you, when you come to Los Angeles, I would meet new comedians and they'd walk into the comedy store or the improv and Robin Williams on stage and Jerry Seinfeld and David Letterman and, and they go, oh, man, and they would just be so intimidated they couldn't even go on. The places I worked, <laughs> the audiences were terrible, the acts were terrible. So I really didn't feel I was that bad. It wasn't until I came here and went, whoa, I got to get, get my act together. These guys are really good, you know. So it was actually rather comforting. That's such an interesting point. I guess where I was going with it, it does take, you know, a lot of determination to come into a place and, you know, I'll give you $50 to be able to perform. Right. What was it that drove you to do that? Why did you have that tenacity to, to, to keep going when, you know, you're not crushing it, you're not in front of lots well, of people, you're not making money, et cetera? I'm a huge believer in low self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the key to success. If you don't think you're the smartest person in the room, you listen, you know? And I realized there's nothing else I really enjoyed doing. I, I'm dyslexic, so I was a ter terrible student. And I... I enjoy talking to people and telling stories and to your friend, you know, you're the class clown at school, all that kind of stuff. And you would get laughs. It seemed like I figured I would do it until I just had to get a real job. Because no matter how bad it was, it was not as bad as not doing it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're on stage, the lights are on you. Oh, I worked the awful places. I, I worked one place where the guy said, uh, the beachcomber in Revere, Massachusetts, he said, when you come, just wear your old clothes. I go, I want to dress up. Just wear your own clothes. Why? Okay. Well, because the guys, they would smoke the cigarettes down and then they flick them on, you know? <laughs> so I'm on stage once and I hear the audience laughing when I'm not, I, and my, my jacket's on fire because the guy <laughs> flicked a cigarette. It was, I had a wool suit on and it started smoking, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I might tell you a funny story. I was at a, uh, a place, a place in Boston, like just a tough place. And I'm on stage and some guy's being seated, you know, and they, they seat him right next to a pole. He goes, I can't see, just shut up and watch the show. Everything okay? Everything okay, Miss Lennon, don't worry about it. And then I hear, <laughs> what was that? And then people laugh and I, they drag this guy out. And I come off stage and say, what was that? And they said, oh, that guy was hassling him about his seat. Why did he scream? Uh, Billy, Billy the bouncer had stabbed him in, in the leg with a knife and just cut him up, you know? And the guy's bleeding. So they gave him 20 bucks, put him in a cab, sent him off, okay? <laughs> okay, so fine. So <laughs> those were the days. Yeah. 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 So then, like a month later, I get a call from the club. I go, hey, Jay, remember Billy the bouncer, the guy that helped you? What do you mean he helped? Remember that I was a heckler and. And Billy stabbed him. I go, well, that didn't really help me. Go, well, what's the problem? He goes, and, and this is my favorite. He said, well, he killed the guy. Now the cops are hassling him. <laughs> and I actually said to the club, I said, well, you think the cops will go after real criminals? <laughs> like and, and the club goes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it, just, it, just, it just made me, I mean, that's what you were dealing with. And it was wow. it, it just very odd, very funny, just curious, working with strippers. I loved it because I was a kid. I was 19. And most of these strippers, it's not like now. Most of these strippers were women that didn't type, weren't in the secretarial pool. And there weren't a lot of, a lot of them were in their 40s. 
And I used to work with these two women, Lily Pagan and I Need a Man. That's, that, that was their name. And we would drive out to army bases and they would set up like a giant champagne glass, you know, have nails in their mouth, put it together, fill it with water and take a bath in it while I told jokes. Okay. But they, I was like a son to them, right? And they'd have the big, they, they had their head shaved, but they were wigs, you know. Like, but I mean, big, strong women, you know. So I'm on stage one and she's in the bathtub doing this, right? And the guy's heckling me. I mean, really, just yelling at me. She just gets out of the tub, goes, oh, booms, and breaks the guy's nose. There's this blood all over the place. He's got blood. She gets back in the tub. She's washing the blood. <laughs> the crowd is cheering. And I'm just, I mean, that, I mean, that's what it was. It was a great life. It was very, you know, my friends are working at Wendy's and McDonald's covered in peanut oil. I'm working with strippers <laughs> at 19. I mean, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. And I, again, you don't realize how bad you are. You don't realize if you're a good comedian or bad comedian. First of all, you have to learn how to talk in front of a crowd mm -hmm. and get a stage presence. To, to have that and the jokes at the same time is pretty rare. So the fact that I was able to get stage time, I always tell young comedians, you know, your church, your synagogue, your, your, your pub, if there's a, like a karaoke night, see if you can emcee it. That way you don't have to be a professional comedian. You're just on stage, you say something funny, oh good, say something else. Oh, that's funny, okay. As soon as you don't get a laugh, okay, let's bring on the next, you know what I mean? Just to get that stage time. And that's what was great. So I, I love that era. I mean, just, you know, when she punched that guy in the face, <laughs> and he was a big one, just boom, just decked this guy. And oh, his friends are all laughing. His nose is smashed. There's blood all over the place. So hilarious. Yeah, that's a hell of a microaggression right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Jay, you also had a few brushes with the mob, didn't you, when you were doing those gigs? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, the real trick is you don't fall for the trap. You know, I remember where I was at a place called Catch a Rising Star, which is in New York. And uh, you got the real New York crowd, right? And I come off stage, I'm in the bar, and this guy, it looks like somebody from the Godfather. He goes, come here. He goes, you're a funny kid. He puts $100 in my breast pocket. This was... 40, 50 years ago, with $100 is $1,000. And I said, no, no, give it to the church or something. He goes, no, 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 no. And I didn't take it. And he goes, you know, you're smart. You don't take money from people like me. You're a smart <laughs> kid. And he goes, never bothered me again. And you realize that's kind of how these things work, you know. I know some people in showbiz, they want to hang out with thugs. They want to think they're living the gangster life. Yeah. And then, hey, we pick up this thing at the airport for me? Well, just, just go pick it up. You know, and then of course they get arrested or whatever. I mean, you fall into the trap. But I already realized by not taking that hundred dollars, nobody ever bothered me again. Yeah, so it was all right. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because you look at people like Sinatra and then later on rappers. They made that mistake. Yeah. Oh, is it some some get through it, some don't. But yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like a smart way to go. No. No, absolutely not. So how did you segue into TV? Was it via the comedy store in LA? Well, TV was always looking for comedians, especially in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Stand-up comedy, not so much now on TV, but, but back then it was a, a staple of any talk show. And there were afternoon talk shows or evening talk shows. And have a comedian who could do five to seven minutes, oh, that was the best. So they would come see you and you would, you would audition. You know, um, 
that's another part of the business I liked a lot because I, you always got more work from other comedians than you ever got from an agent or a manager. You know, the idea that it's always this cutthroat business and they, I, I always see that portrayed that way. I mean, Steve Martin brought Johnny Carson in to see me, Harvey Corman brought Johnny in to see me a couple of times. Um, I brought uh, Ellen, I brought Johnny in to see Ellen DeGeneres once I got a little bit of fame. I mean, you can't do every job every day, every place. So there's really enough work for everybody. You know, every pub in the country has a karaoke night or a comedy night or something. So you, there's plenty of gigs to do. And comedians always help one another. I lived in Boston, which was odd because most comedians were in New York. So my place was where, where comedians would stay when they came to Boston. I just decided, hey, to go to Boston, call this guy, Jay Leno, you stay at his place. Okay. And that's how I got to know Billy Crystal and Freddie Prince and all kinds of comedians. Yeah. Because Freddie Prince, I mean, that was a, you, I mean, when you saw the documentary about the comedy store, I wasn't aware of him. I was only aware of his son because yeah, of the same yeah. generation. Right, right. But you forget what a what an incredible comedian he was. He was very good. He was a young kid. He was he was 17, 18 when he started. Yeah. But it was a classic, couldn't handle the fame thing, you know. I mean, rather sad. And he didn't kill himself. Ultimately, it was deemed an accident. But... He had a, you know, Freddie would like put a bullet in a gun and say to go, I'm going to go kill myself, bang, fire it in the sand, and then pretend to be dead. And then she'd scream and I, you know, just, <laughs> just weird, just weird, you know. And one time there was a bullet in the gun and that's when he killed himself. That's when he died. I mean, that's what I think happened. And ultimately that's what the insurance company, I believe, ruled out. And Jay, you mentioned being able to handle fame. There are clearly some people who can and some people who can't. Do you have any thoughts on why it is that some people are able to take it in their stride and others really struggle. Well, you know, that was the great thing about doing The Tonight Show because I could be around show business without living it, you know? Mm. You know, I love Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen's a friend of mine. I don't want to be Charlie Sheen. So being part of Charlie Sheen's... You know, one day I'm, we had Charlie Sheen booked on the show, right? So the show is taping at 5 o'clock and I go, boy, it's 4 o'clock. Charlie here yet? No. Then the phone on my desk for me. Jay, I got a phone call. Charlie Sheen, what? Jay, man, in the limo, we got T-Bone. Are you all right? I'm okay. Okay, yeah, but oh man, they, they caught fire, the whole thing. Are you all right? Yeah, yeah. All right, look, Charlie, don't worry about it. Well, I'll get a comic, get somebody to film. Say, Charlie had an accident. You know, call a comedian. Let's get somebody. Okay. I got the news on. I don't hear anything about it, you know? So I go, well, let, me, let me call the driver, you know? This is, now it's like quarter to five. Hello? Joe? Yeah, it's Jay. Yeah. Who are you? So I'm sitting outside Charlie Sheen's house. He hasn't come out yet. You didn't get T-boned in the limo? What? No. no. And I called Charlie. I go, Charlie, what are you, two? There's a monster, <laughs> there's a monster under the... You think I'm going to check that you're in a limo or got T-boned and it caught fire? And that's... <laughs> I mean, it was, it was so stupid. You know, not like, oh, I'm sick. Oh, Okay. But the idea of the limo and you got T-boned, it burst into flames, the police fired. Yeah, yeah, just hilarious. I mean, so that's what was fun about doing the show. I could live that life and enjoy it without having it affect me. You know? mm. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I was thinking about this when we were coming here to interview. You've been married since 1980. Right. You, you, you're not, you know, I, you don't drink or take drugs, right? Is that no, right? No, no, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry about yeah. that. <laughs> oh, no. I, you know, I just have no interest in it. It yeah. doesn't interest me. It's not like I'm on some moral high horse. Sure. Or no, no, no. It's just not. I was always, I'm a car guy, so I was always a designated driver. 
So losing my license would be the biggest fear right. of my life. You know, so consequently, I was the guy that drive all my drunk friends around. That's fine. And then yeah. roll them later and take their money. Yeah. But, yeah, no. But, uh, yeah. But that's this is your addiction, yeah. basically. Yeah, this is it here. Yeah. yeah. And how did you get into cars? What, 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 what was well, it? Well, you grew up in New England. There were always broken snowmobiles. You know, in America, you could buy cars for $25 or $50. Cars that were really not that old, five or 10 years old, yeah. because there were just so many cars in America that there was stuff, cars would be abandoned in a field. It wouldn't take a lot to get them running. And, and that's what we did. You know, in those days, I remember we found a Renault uh, 4CV, which is a small, you know, and we had three acres in our, we didn't live on a farm, but we lived in a rural area. So we would drive around the back. I mean, now, of course, they call child services and the parents would go to prison and you'd be put <laughs> in foster home. But my mom would just watch out. We were like 11. My mom would watch through the kitchen window while she's doing ditches. And we would just drive the Renault around, you know, and we rolled it over a couple of times, stuff like that. And so that's where it sort of comes. Plus, when you work with your hands, you tend to get more of an appreciation how easy it is to talk for a living. You know, the idea that the heart is healthiest when the head and the hands work together, that kind of thing. You know, so you work in it, and you go out and you stand on stage. Oh, God, this is so much easier than taking a transmission out. You know? Yeah, I, that's such a profound point. I think that's part of the problem with our society, Jay, is that, very few of us work with our hands. We're all in our head. Right. And that's why we've, we've come up with these crazy ideas or we get offended by things that we shouldn't get offended about. Yeah, that's what me. Because we're not connected to the reality anymore. I, I, I suppose that's true. Yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. But again, like I said, it's low self-esteem. You don't think you're the smarter. I'm so fortunate to make the kind of money to afford all this stuff. <laughs> you know, please, you know. I don't think, oh, I'm really good. No, because what are you doing on the truth? That's my favorite thing when I talk to young comedians. You know, I never ask people, I, I always take the job and ask what it pays later. Yeah. You know, like when I was doing The Tonight Show. Now at the time, I was, I was a guest host and there were maybe a half a dozen or more comedians that were also guest hosts. And I was the seventh guy out of the six, and those six are all represented by the same manager. And that manager called me and said, uh, listen, we're going to Johnny Carson, and we're going to ask 25000 a show to host. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm getting $512 a show to host, which was scale. Yeah. They said, no, we're getting it. I said, you getting it? Yeah, we got it last week of so-and-so. We got it with so-and-so, whenever they host. I said, you know, I'm going to stick with the $512. All right, make a mistake. All right, please. Okay. Well, guess who gets named permanent guest host? <laughs> I mean, Johnny owns the show. Okay. Now, these guys, it's costing us 250000 a month. Lola costs us 2500 a month. They all doing about the same? Yeah. Why don't we go with Lola? <laughs> okay. And then the money comes later. You know, I, I always meet comedians that just, I'm not working for that kind of money. What are you doing on a Tuesday? <laughs> it's worth $5,000. Really, really. And that's all that's been my attitude about it, you know? If you're any good, the money will come later. Plus, there's a joy in doing it. I mean, the same show I do for a charity benefit for free is just as joyous to do as one that's paying you a lot of money in Vegas. And sometimes it's more fun, you know, so if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. You, you really love the job. Yeah, I think it's great fun. I, I really like it. I like the challenge of it. I like... But you know, you have to like people. I'm amazed at the number of 
comedians I meet that just don't like people. I don't want to deal with those jerks, you know. I'm, no, I'm not seeing anybody after the show. No pictures. Well, somebody goes out of the way to pay, you know, a lot of money to come see you. Uh, why would you not want to please thank them or say hello? It's why I don't sell swag. I mean, it's, oh, you should sell T-shirts and photos afterwards. Not, you know, if they got out of the way to buy a ticket, I'm not going to hit. Oh, it's another 10 bucks to shake my hand. Thank you. You know, it just seems a little, uh, yeah. Did you ever think you'd be here? No. <laughs> no. I never thought I would be here. No, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world to me. I mean, I suppose on some level, I probably thought, wouldn't that be nice? But not, not in any real world. I mean, yeah, no, no, it, it, it never did. So that's why I am eternally grateful. You know, because like I say, you know, when I, when I got the Tonight Show, I hired the best writers I could find and the best lighting people. And I listened to them. When they told me I sucked, Okay, I guess I suck. So what, what should we do to change? You know, I had the same crew for 22 years. I know so many comics that go through writers and they don't let the writer find your voice, take a chance, you know. I never hired anybody for 13 weeks. I would hire them for a year because it would take nine months sometimes for them to go, oh, I think, like I would say, just write down everything. Even if it's not a punchline, even if it's just a setup, a store that sells this. Okay. Maybe someone of us can come on. And, and that really worked out pretty good for me. So, well, based on what you're saying, you sound like a really nice guy, Jay. Hey, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the moment from this interview that yeah. everyone's going to love. Someone telling me to go fuck myself. Yeah. Go for it. But it's a very yeah. powerful message because what you're talking about is humility. And you see, you know, in, in any field or any particular career, mm. the moment people lose touch, and they stop being humble. Right. That's the moment. Oh, yeah. I, 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 you can trace it. I am so amazed at the, at the um, just typical, the, the thing, and then the drugs. You know, I always say behind every successful man, there's a woman. Behind every unsuccessful man, there are two women. <laughs> you know? And that's usually what happens. It just, it just, it just makes me laugh. It, you know, whether it's Justin Bieber or something, okay, then they go through the obligatory drug stage. And then, you know, I, it's hilarious. It just makes me laugh. Because how, do you, how did you steer a path through that, though? How did you steer through? Because you're very self-deprecating, you're very affable, you're a nice guy. But when everybody's telling you, hey, this is Jay Leno, you're a big shot, how do you stop Well, your first of all, you don't have those people. When I travel, like I'm in Florida this weekend, I travel by myself. Because when you travel by yourself, funny things happen. Funny things don't happen when you have somebody, advanced team, go ahead and clear everything out of the way. You know, I mean, it, it and, and you have to find the humor in that, you know. The, the idea is that you have, you know, I have a place in Rhode Island, uh, and I was there the other day, and I always go to Joe's Pizza. Mm -hmm. Just a little place sells wings. Okay, so someone said, hey, you got to try this Nicholas pizza. All right. So I go to Nicholas pizza. Oh, there's a line. That must mean it's good. I go, Jay? Hey, it's Joe. What? You know, Joe's pizza. Hey, Joe, how you doing? He goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> I go, so I just lie. I go, you know, I had a coupon. I figured, <laughs> I figured I'd try to use a coupon. <laughs> and he says, coupon? 
Hey, we all agree we wouldn't use coupon. <laughs> that son of a bitch using coupon. <laughs> now I go, wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Now I'm in this lie. I'm in this stupid lie. Like, you'd rather just say, oh, I want to try another pizza. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to dig myself out of it. And finally I said, look, no, I, actually, I just want <laughs> But that's what I mean. Those things don't happen when you have somebody get your pizza for you. Mm. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's sort of, that, that's really the fun part of it. It's just, you, you meet the oddest people, you know? Like I get, uh, like when I go back to New England, which is a very quirky, I don't know what, I don't know what the equivalent would be in England, yeah. but I get what they call Boston compliments. This is in Boston, this is a real compliment I got. I'm walking down Newbury Street and this guy goes, hey, Jay Leno, my friend met you in California. He said, you're not an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, thank you very much. And then he goes, no, really? He said, you weren't. I said, well, please tell him thank you very much. And I realized that's as good as you're going to get. Yeah. You know, that, that to his world, that was a compliment. It, and it just made me laugh. I wasn't offended by it, but it was just funny. And nobody would say that to me if I had a family with some bodyguards or people walking with me. If I hadn't been, hadn't been walking by myself, that wouldn't have happened. And I thought, well, that was, a, that was that just made me laugh. It just it was, it was so typical of New England, that quirky, Yankee kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, Massachusetts, back in the 80s, they wanted to pass a mandatory seatbelt law. Well, it's against freedom. And, and they were selling T-shirts that had a fake seatbelt on it. So when you're driving and a cop saw you, it looked like you were wearing a seatbelt. To go to all this trouble, I mean, that's the mentality that you're dealing with. To show that you're for freedom, freedom to have your head go through the windshield. It always made me laugh. So. Yeah, that's that's that, that's why I don't I don't have people travel with me because the funny things don't happen. Any. By the way, in Eng that backhanded compliment in England, that's a compliment. That's, yeah. that's how we do it. Right. right you can't yeah. just praise somebody. You can't right. just say you're yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's weird. Well, I, I love the English thing of no, noble failures are somehow better than successes. Oh, yeah. it failed. Sorry, mate. That's terrible. Come on, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, you, you prick! You're being successful. Yeah. Oh, you, uh, yeah. Yeah. Very funny. Thank yeah. You, yeah. We we hate success in the yeah, UK. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You know. Have you noticed that? I do notice it. Stranger in a Strange Land is is my favorite thing. I love watching immigrant comics come to America. Uh, who is the comedian? A Chinese uh, gentleman. He, he had a whole bit. I just watched him the other night about Americans' napkins. I need napkins. When they go to fast food fates, they take all the napkins. <laughs> and I just I said, why didn't I? Why didn't I think of that? Because... I'm an American, so it, it was second nature. But whenever I, like Russell Peters, same thing, yeah. very funny. The Amer American's reaction to whatever it might be, the immigrant experience, it always makes me laugh. Yeah, that is a really important thing for a comedian to have that outside eye. And also to, to like people. And that's what I got when I used to watch your show is it was so obvious that you liked talking with people. Yeah, you know, and the whole political correctness thing was never really a problem for me because I don't, I mean, my attitude, I, I find when you have a crowd, they think as a crowd. Mm. They will side with the heckler unless you do something really clever. But for the most part, but I, whenever I would get hecklers, I remember times they had just enormous fat guy and I was making fun of his tie. And I could see he was, waiting for the fat guy joke. I never did one. Mm. And then he got very, 
sat down again, you know, yeah. the, because he realized I didn't go for the throw. I didn't try to, I didn't have to kill him. Yeah. I just had to gently prod him a little bit. And, he, and, and you know, when, when people sense you're not being cruel, then now the audience sides with you. You know, working at audience is like working with an orchestra. You have to learn. You know, I remember when Hillary Clinton was running for president the last time, not this time. She was running against Jesse Jackson and all the other candidates. And I had a joke about each candidate. And the Jesse Jackson joke was not about him being black, but as a candidate. The joke about Hillary Clinton wasn't because she was a woman, but because she's a candidate. But when I got to the Hillary Clinton joke, I'd hear this, <laughs> this guttural kind of guy laugh. And I think, oh, do they think I'm making fun of her because she's a woman running for president? And I see women would get sort of standoffish, misinterpreting. So I just took the joke out because I, I didn't like where it went. You know, you just, it's like hearing a, a bad note in an orchestra. You just right, get, just get rid of that note. Just take it out. You know? So you, you want to have to, to me, the best audience is one that's totally integrated. A lot of male, a lot of female, a lot of different minority people. It just keeps everybody honest. I mean, I'm sure, you know, as a comic playing an all male audience, that's the worst because unless you're doing sports jokes, they don't want to hear it. You know, you know, the women keep the men in line, you know, and if you get the women laughing, oh, oh not now the men like you too, because my date like you, you know, so you have to learn to sort of work the room, you know, it's sometimes you can, uh, you know, win the battle, but lose the war. And who are your favorite guests to talk to on your shows? Well, I, I always like politicians because, you know, when you're talking to Batman, it's not really Batman, it's, it's a guy <laughs> playing Batman, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm one of my favorite, yeah, I remember Hillary Clinton had the nomination locked up. The election was like 25, 30 weeks away. All of a sudden, this guy, Barack Obama, sh shows up and gives a speech, and people are very impressed, you know. So I said, oh, let's call him. So I call him up and say, hey, we'd love to have you on the Tonight Show. Oh, thanks, Jay. He drives himself to the show. You know, he's got a jacket over his shoulder. He walks out of there, Jay, my name is Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm running for president of the United States. I say, okay, a black guy from Chicago, his middle name is Hussein, nobody ever heard of you don't even need to campaign. I think you're just going to win right away. <laughs> yeah, and, and he thought that was the funniest thing. And we got to be friends, you know. So he gave me his cell phone number. Next time he was on the show, he was president of the United States. And this time, the whole parking lot was tented for like two acres. So when presidential limousine came in from a satellite, you couldn't see where it went under the tent. And it was the first time the president of the show. And th this is why you have the same stupid friends you had when you were growing up. I was talking to some of my high school buddies. I said, you know, when President Obama gave me his cell phone number, let's call it. I said, I'm not going to call it. You don't have it. You don't have it. Shut up. I said, no, you shut up. I'm not. Okay, now you're like in fourth grade. I said, no, I said, what? I said, well, okay. Okay, it's 12 o'clock. That's three o'clock back here. I said, you want me to? Okay. Okay, so I doubt it. I hear. Barack here, Mr. President. Yeah. Jay Leno. Jay, what can I do for you? Uh, should I lose this number? Lose the number, Jay. Click. And he hangs up. And, and, and it was just like the funniest thing. <laughs> it was like the funniest thing. It just made me laugh. But again, the same stupid friends you had in high school. Do you like talking to politicians? Well, I just like it because it's real. Yeah. You, you know, with a movie, you always have to do it. And you were good. You know, when the movie's <laughs> awful, you were incredible in one scene. You know, 
Sean Connery was one of my favorites. Mm. Yeah. I like Sean because he, he was not James Bond. I mean, he was the tough son of a bitch, that guy. I mean, he had been a, uh, did you know he was third runner up Mr. Universe, 1953? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, he was, and he would come into the Tonight Show, and gee, gee, what's the neatest filthy joke going about, gee? You know, and I'd tell him the joke, and he would laugh like a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> like that, I mean, the, like the most hearty laugh. And, I, and you always hear the term, that's a knee slapper. He's the only guy ever saw actually slap his knee and do that. And, laugh. and he was just, he was the only guy when he came to the Tonight Show, because we had these little tiny dressing rooms. He was the only guy that would take a shower at the studio. And he would sing, oh, the Scotland, da, 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 da. And, and the news crew would go, hey, keep it down down there. It's not me, it's Sean Connery, you know? <laughs> and, and Sean Connery would be singing in the shower. And he, he was just very funny, just very funny. He was a tough guy. Yeah. He was a tough guy. In fact, one time, um, do you ever hear of a guy named Johnny Stompanato? Johnny Stompanato was a gangster who was going out with Lana Turner. Craig Ferguson told me this story. It's very funny. And Sean Connery had a small part in the movie. And she was sort of flirting with Sean because he's a handsome guy. Johnny Stantano pulls a gun on Sean Connery. He takes a gun, smash up the side of the head. Don't bring a gun to me, what please? He <laughs> all the bullets out and gives him back the gun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's in some ways, have we lost a little bit of that? You have lost a little bit of that. I mean, that's, you know, my mother's from Scotland, the most conservative woman you could imagine. She's the only man I've heard. You know, Jamie, that's Sean Connery. That's a real man, Jamie. I go, Ma, I don't want to hear it. Go, that's a real man, Jamie. Ma, I don't want to hear it, Ma. You know, uh, she never talked like that about anybody, but it was Sean Connery. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> EasyDNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now. All you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. I mean, the world you are describing, particularly from the early days, is so different to the world that we have now. Yeah, it is different. But I mean, that's, is it progress? I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know how you, you know, it's funny because everybody said, oh, someday Big Brother, you know, it's going to be terrible. But no, nobody thinks Big Brother is watching Big Brother. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember, you remember the Rodney King's thing? The yeah. incidents? Okay. To me, that was the day newspapers died because that was the first time news went unfiltered because when you saw the Rodney King thing on the news, they said uh, six black men in a Hyundai were driving 115 miles an hour, which is impossible, the Hyundai from that period. And they got pulled over by police and da, 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 da. Because in those days, you had a news editor who would look at film and go, 
boy, this is, uh, this is explosive stuff. This is going to incite riots. Let's just make, you know, like for example, in, in, in Boston, a woman was never raped. She was accosted. So that could be anything from a wolf whistle, somebody pinching your ass, you know, it wasn't, you know, they just, just wouldn't use the term. So the Rodney King guy, he, he filmed it from his, from his porch and he sent it right to the internet. And that was the first time, maybe not the very first time, but certainly unfiltered news just went up. People, well, that's not what we just saw in the 11 o'clock news. They said these guys are speeding and all this other kind of stuff, you know? So, so we live in a world now, it's better because what used to be the law is now against the law, mm -hmm. which is good. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, you just see all of it. I mean, the classic story is shock attack are, are, are up 100%. Okay, he had three last year. He had six this year. But rather than just say that, the new shark attack, one hundred percent people, oh my God, get the kids out of the pool. You know, the people are worried. Is there, no, <laughs> get the kids out of the pool. <laughs> That's what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. It, it just we get fed the stuff yeah. and then we overreact in response. Right, exactly, to it. Yeah. exactly. So I think, see, I, I'm an optimist. I think things, I think what happens is the elite have come down a step or two and mm -hmm. everybody else has come up a level or two which I think is great. I mean, you now have protections, you know, like when you watch the comedy Animal House, which is done in 79, there's a funny scene where they're in, this, we're in the fraternity and there's the Muslim kid and the Indian kid and everybody's just making fun of them, you know, which wouldn't happen today. And I suppose it was funny back then, but not if you're Indian or Muslim, you know. Uh, those kind of things. Does it go a bit too far sometimes? Yeah, okay, but that's what happens with a pendulum. Sometimes it swings too far left, too far right. But ultimately, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad thing. And are you on social media? Do you use social media? No, I try not to. You know, I, I, I someone said, you send some of your jokes out. And I did it, and everything just got so misinterpreted. It just, you know, just people mad about things. I was telling him a story before. I was in a uh, Chinese restaurant with my wife, small family restaurant. Mom was running the register and sit like 12 tables and the rest of the family's the cook in the back. Okay. I'm talking to my wife and, and the woman, the older lady is just whew, bringing the order. I said, man, this woman's really working her ass off. And since this, this is right near UCLA, the college, the female college student said, ah, she's a server. And I, I said, well, didn't she a woman first? <laughs> I said, you know, I, I try to watch what I say. I didn't say waitress. I didn't say chick. I, I, I didn't say stewardess. And if I had said server, I would expect you to say she's a woman because I'm defining her by her job. Uh, so isn't she a woman? I didn't say girl. And she this, and to her credit, she said, well, I guess you're right. I go, well, okay. But I mean, you jump on me. First of all, I'm having a conversation with my wife. You know, and I said, I'm not mattering, but I just don't, I don't see your point. Why would she be a server before she's a woman? And then eventually, yeah, but okay, no problem. But I mean, that's the world you live in. People are offended for somebody else. I'm not offended, but I know, you know. And I think it's so interesting you say you don't use social media because people misinterpret things. Yeah. I think maybe that's why a lot of people feel like we live in a time where people are really easily offended, whatever, because we all now live on social media where everyone is bitching and moaning and fighting about everything. Right, right, yeah. And realize one person has the power of 10,000 people. Mm -hmm. 
And if one person says you're a Nazi, well, now you have to defend yourself, which seems ridiculous when there's no, you know, uh, the number of people I meet that now believe we did not walk on the moon. All right. All right. I mean, it, it seems ridiculous, but it's the way. And, and what do you think about comedians getting into trouble for jokes and cancellations? Do you think that's the pendulum going too far? Do you think that's well, I think this, it, you know, the, well, the idea of a rape joke has the same career penalty as an actual rape. That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, if you do a joke about rape, you're canceled, you're, 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 all your TV appearances are gone or whatever it might be. If you actually commit the crime, same penalty, same penalty. So it does say, I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is there. I, I mean, you know, Louis C.K. I think is hilarious. Yep. What he did seemed odd to me. Mm. I mean, the idea of, the guy's bragging about, see that blonde over there with the big boobs? Invite her back to my apartment. Went in the other room and jerked off. <laughs> <laughs> like a legend. <laughs> I don't see, I, 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 it doesn't seem like something I would brag about, but uh, oh, okay. But uh, I mean, was his crime the same as Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. No, but the penalty is the same. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'll get in trouble just for saying this. Yeah. It, it's, we seem to be, this is my issue with it, and see if you agree and push back if you yeah. don't. It seems to me that we're living in a world without nuance, where everything is either black or it's white. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly true. That's, that's exactly where it is. Like the lady with server, woman. Why are we even having this discussion? You, know. uh, you mentioned you're an optimist. Yeah. What are you excited about, Jay? What am I what? Excited about. What am I excited about? Yeah. Oh. Oh. I mean, your show's crushing it on YouTube. I'm very jealous. <laughs> yeah, we're doing fine. I, I mean, I, I believe you're only as good as your last joke, mm -hmm. really. Wow. You know, you know, it's so funny. Like, I stopped doing political jokes because the people get so mad. But they they want to know the joke first before they laugh. Is this pro-Trump or anti-Trump? Mm. They want to know where you're coming from. So I'm trying to write jokes that are political but without politicians? Let me, let me try one of these two words. Please. Go. All right, this guy, he's uh, like a young Barack Obama, charismatic speaker, new guy in his party, picked Democrat or Republican or Tory or whatever. Okay. So he gets invited to the big uh, presidential nomination convention in New York. And he flies to New York, gets, walks into Madison Square, got 30,000 people sold out. Eight o'clock, the vice president goes on. Crowd goes crazy. Nine o'clock, the president goes on. Crowd goes crazy. Then the senator, then the mayor, then the police chief, then the uh, postmaster general. Then the, and then finally, the guy looks at his watch. You know, he's got a speech in his hand. It's 1.30 in the morning. Place is completely empty. All 30,000 people are gone. He looks behind him, sitting in the same row, four seats by a guy sitting like this watch. He says, you know something? That guy stayed. That guy stayed. I'm going to give my speech. Is it those 30,000 people still here? Because that guy stayed. So he goes, and we must move forward. And America must see the. And he talks about half an hour. He comes off stage. The guy's still sitting there. He goes down and says, Sir, can I ask you a question? What made you stay for my speech? The guy says, Oh, I speak next. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a political joke. Yeah. And when I tell the audience that's what I'm going to do, then they, everybody laughs at it. I don't lose half the crowd. Yeah. yeah. 
That's so interesting that that's the direction you're moving in because, and see if you agree with this, but it, when I watch late night comedy shows now, it feels like they've moved in the other direction. They're leaning into making a point about the other two. Well, you know, it's so funny. People have been saying to me, boy, I bet you regret leaving The Tonight Show now that Trump's president. Now, you know something? When you like people, it's so much easier to make fun of them. Mm. Yeah. When you don't like them, and I don't like Trump, um, and not political, just morally unfit to the office, it's hard to, to, to keep your rage. And Okay, now you're, okay, are you telling me this because of political reasons or because you think it's really funny? I mean, there's always, a, a joke should be pure. It should just be, just pure jokes, you know? That's the great thing I was telling about Rodney. Rodney Dangerfield and I were great friends. I know him 40 years. I have no idea if he's Republican or Democrat. He just had simple, my favorite joke, he said, uh, I went to my doctor. My doctor said, I want a urine sample. I want a semen sample. And, and I want a, uh, and I want a, a stool? stool sample. So I gave him my underpants. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just a stupid joke. I mean, it's really funny. I mean, it's just, just pure just, uh, just the joy is in the joke. I have no, I meet so many comments going, yeah, I just want people to understand how I feel about, I don't think anybody cares how I feel about an issue. I think We're in the feelings age now though, Jay. Yeah, like yeah. everyone is putting all of themselves out there for everyone to see. Yes, That's but not everybody, they're not as successful as Rodney was because no. it was just, Rodney worked both sides. Of it. Just, just did jokes. I thank you. Here's a joke. Thank you. You know, Rodney Dangerfield had an incredible story because this is a guy who, when he started out, he he failed at his job. Uh, he failed at the, becoming a comedian, went away, came back. Well, you know what it was? Because his face did not look like his act. Yeah, right. I, I remember, I've known Seinfeld for years, and Jerry and I are really good friends. And when Jerry's like 21 years old, he looks 14. And he had a joke about... You know, when you bring a hooker back to your apartment, I go, first of all, nobody believes you ever got a hooker. Nobody <laughs> believes you should go back to your apartment. And we both laughed at it because he looked so, he didn't look like what he was talking about. Yeah. You know, so that's the thing. And Rodney, he started out as a comic and he, he had a muse named Joe Ansis. You ever heard this name? No. Okay. Joe Ansis was one of those guys, the funniest guy of everybody, stayed fright to death. So he would sit, he would do table comedy. He'd sit with Lenny Bruce and Rodney and all the guys, and he would just say stuff and guys, oh, can I, can I buy that? Can I have that joke? Can I have that? And, and that's where he was. Like I knew Rodney when Rodney didn't do no respect. He did like little bits. He had a bit about, uh, he's, he, this kind of comedy has sort of fallen out, but he says, uh, oh, that's your captain speaking. We're on flight so-and-so at TWA Airlines. Flying over the Grand Canyon right now, look out the left side of the plane, you can see the remains of flight uh, 419 that crashed just uh, six years ago. Bob, you were with me on that one, weren't you? you know, <laughs> just, just, I mean, that's when he, 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 he just those sort of character little pieces like that. And then I don't know if it came from Joe Ansis, but that whole thing about no respect and starting to look like his act, it really came out of that. I'll tell you a funny Rodney story. Um, my favorite thing was when I watched Rodney on with Johnny, and Johnny would be the straight man. Things are rough, Rodney. Oh, okay, Jake. But last week, Johnny, I got to tell you, you know. And then he it was really cold. How cold was? Oh, yeah, it was so cold. You know, and, and, and just playing the straight man. So I, I, I dreamed of the day when I could do that with Rodney. So when I got to this match, I never had Rodney on. Uh, Things are rough, Rodney. Oh, Jay, I tell you, terrible. You know. So one day, uh, about two thousand four or five. 
Now, Rodney's in his 80s now and a little shaky. And I have him on the Tonight Show and he's doing his act, you know, and he's a little off, you know, the, you know, the, this gesture he does, I tell you, but, but the hand was like over, uh, just a few little mistakes. I don't, only another comic would notice it if you knew Rodney. So while he was doing his thing on the show, I said to Debbie, our producer, I said, call the paramedics. I think Rodney's having a stroke, you know? She goes, really? Oh, yeah, just call him. Okay. So Rodney finished. He says, now, Jay, how you doing? I tell you, I'm okay today, but last week, you know, <laughs> and he was fine. Okay. And then the show ends, Rodney's in his dressing room. Now the paramedics show up. I said, Rodney, the paramedics here, can they take a look at it? I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, he did have a stroke and they took Rodney out in a, in a stretcher. And a couple of weeks later, it got worse. And his wife, Joan, called me and said, Jay, Rodney's in the hospital again. So I drive out to the hospital and Rodney's lying there like this. Eyes are open. And she says, the doctor says he can hear us, but he can't respond. So I'm telling him how much we love him, how great he was to all us young comics, letting us work Rodney, the Rodney Dangerville nightclub in New York and how great he was to everybody. And so he, his, his wife says, goes, Rodney, Jay, put your finger in Rodney's hand. She goes, Rodney, if you know it's Jay, try and squeeze his finger. So I put my finger in Rodney's hand, you know, and, and he, and I, went, I said to him, Rodney, that's not my finger. <laughs> and he, and he did this. He, he just moved for a second and his wife, he moved, and, and to get a laugh out of Rodney in that situation, it just, it just really made me feel good. And Joan got it. We weren't being mean. It was just, he was a comic, you know, but you're Rodney, that's not my finger. And he, it, 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 nothing changed except he just did a twitch and he passed away oh, probably a couple of days later. But I mean, it was great to get that reaction for Rodney. I mean, he was a comic till the end, you know? It's a beautiful story, Jay. Oh, it's a wonderful story. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Beautiful story. Uh, we're going to ask you a couple of questions from our supporters uh, in a second. But before we do, we'll always end the main section of the interview with the same question, which is what's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? It's not my call. It's your call. The idea is, well, I feel that people <laughs> have to know. That's I mean, my, as a society. That's my favorite thing is watching Jerry Springer. I want everyone on national television to know about this guy. Well, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Uh, what's the one thing we all need to know? That's not my job. Uh, you know, I, there are, you know, there's nothing harder than writing a joke. I love it when I see comedians get TV shows where they're the inquisitive reporter. Yeah, you know why? Because that's easier than writing a joke. Everything's easier than writing a joke. It's the hardest thing in the world to actually sit down and write jokes. So they'll come up with any excuse. I, I always hated it when I would, like whenever I go on TV, I do stand up. I don't come out and sit on the couch because people go, as a kid, I would go, oh, I wanted to see him do, I wanted to see him do comedy, you know? No one, no one is interesting. What you do is interesting or what you have to say is interesting or what you're saying but really, there are very, very few people that are that interesting. So to me, you, you should bring something more to the party, you know, if that makes any sense. All right, head on over to Locals where we ask Jay your questions. Kelly Francis says, oh my God, you must bring up the fact that Francis doesn't know how to drive. Oh. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd known that before we started this interview.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.